ask you to turn with me to three openings of Scripture. They're all pretty close together, so it won't be too difficult for you. John chapter 8, John chapter 18, and John chapter 17. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 31, Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. We've mentioned this, uh, well, I guess I mention it every time that we come to this scripture or refer to this scripture. God seems to have a, uh, make a distinction between believers and disciples. Amen. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. What makes the difference? What distinguishes between a believer and a disciple? Their attitude toward the word and their continuance in the word. Now I want you to turn with me to to, uh, John chapter 18. This is Jesus standing before Pilate. I'm going to pull verse 37 out of context here just for the sake of time. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? This is when Jesus is being examined just prior to the crucifixion. Pilate said unto him, Art thou a king then? And Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end I was born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. And Pilate said unto him, What is truth? And when Jesus had said this, he went out again unto the Jews and said unto them, I find in him no fault at all. Turn back with me now to chapter 17 real quickly. This is Jesus praying for the church. Verse 17, he said as a part of his prayer to the Father, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Now, folks, we all know that much of this world considers truth to be a relative thing. And by that, I mean, and I assume that they mean, that you have your truth and I have my truth, and there are all other kinds of truth that people can have or hold. And that seems to be, and I I don't know what people's motive is behind it, But I know the devil sure uses it. And he uses it in such a way so that people are unconvinced or don't consider that truth is absolute. Because we live in a world where nobody wants absolutes. One of the most used phrases of this present generation, this younger generation, is don't judge me. Well, absolute truth brings judgment, like it or not. And it seems that we live in a day and time where people would would prefer to think what they want to think and believe what they want to believe, whether it's true or not, and to go through life ignoring what might be the absolute truth. But truth is absolute. I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, And I was born in 1955, and so my young years were spent in Sunday school and and church services and so forth, hearing Baptist doctrine, having relationships with wonderful people. They were tremendous, terrific people. And they taught us all they knew. They just didn't know some things that we know now to be true. But one of the things that I came away with in my childhood, being part of the church, being part of the Baptist church, is we were afraid of science. It was common knowledge. I don't know if it was true or not, but everybody had the idea that most scientists didn't believe in God. And evolution was a big deal. It was, they were arguing about whether or not they were going to teach it to the kids in school and so forth. And we were afraid of science because 
at least in my mind, as a child, I thought that science disproved the Bible. Or at least I thought there was a chance that science would disprove the Bible. And so we just kind of stuck our head in the sands about some things. We didn't want to argue evolution because we didn't know what the uh, scientific studies revealed. And there was always this attitude that was promoted when they talked about science. And, and like I said, this is in Birmingham, Alabama, folks. This is in the Bible Belt. But even there, there was concern that what we believed in the Bible or believed from the Bible, specifically the story of creation, could not be held up under the scrutiny of science or wouldn't hold up. And so we were afraid of science. There were a lot of things that happened about the middle of 1960s. There was a gentleman by the name of Carl Sagan. I'm not sure what his title was. He was considered to be a scientist or astronomer or physicist or something like that. But anyway, he, he was well enough, well enough known that people recognized his name. And he came up with this idea that because at the time there were two main requirements for life to exist here on the earth, water and oxygen. And so he postulated very publicly, and it was very widespread, uh, reported widespreadly, uh, reported in a wide manner, that, uh, uh, that with all the millions and millions and millions of planets out there, the two characteristics that would support life on earth, which they knew of at the time, water and, and oxygen, he came up with some kind of calculation as to how many planets in the universe could support life. And he came up with a number that was quite large. And everybody just accepted. I mean, he was a scientist. He was an expert. He's supposed to know. And so everybody just accepted the fact that there could be and should be and probably was life on other planets. Now, folks, if there's life on other planets, who's their redeemer? And so you can well imagine the threat that was perceived and, and leveled against the church's belief in creation. But about the same time that Carl Sagan was making headlines with his new idea, there were some kind of background radiation waves or radio waves or something like that that were discovered in space. And those background waves, and they were, from what I understand, they were discovered accidentally by two guys that were looking for something else and found something more important. These background waves proves scientifically that the Big Bang Theory was correct. Now, the Big Bang Theory was, uh, uh, was first mentioned by a physicist in 1949 in an interview that he did with uh, the BBC. And he just kind of coined the phrase. It wasn't meant to be a scientific phrase or whatever, but he coined the phrase, the Big Bang Theory, to, to identify or explain what he was talking about. And so about the same time that Carl Sagan was postulating his theory, the Big Bang Theory was proven, but nobody, there was no reporting on that. There were very few people that had any information concerning that whatsoever. Now, the Big Bang Theory is basically the universe has a beginning, and there was an explosion in space, or in nothingness, really, that created everything. Well, the Big Bang Theory is, is accepted by everybody now. Nobody argues that now. Everybody understands that that's correct, and that's how things happened. But again, we've got this bugaboo about science, that science is supposed to be the, the final answer of everything. And science can explain to us the universe that we live in and so forth. 
I found an interesting quote by Albert Einstein. He's supposed to be pretty smart. Albert Einstein said, science may describe the universe to us, but it can't explain anything. That's pretty good for a scientist. He understood the limits of science. Well, this Big Bang Theory that is now accepted by everybody refutes the very nature of science itself. For example, one of the first laws of thermodynamics is that matter cannot be created or destroyed. But science knows that matter was created. Science knows that the Big Bang Theory, and, and from what I understand, if I'm, if I'm interpreting this correctly, from what I understand, they've gotten to the point, science has gotten to the point where it can listen in. It has identified waves that are operating in space itself. And if we find any way to listen in on what those waves say, they are sound waves. We may very well one day be able to hear the voice of God saying, light be. They know it's there, they just don't know how to listen. They haven't identified anything, any kind of mechanism to give voice to the, 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 the waves that they already know are there, the sound waves that they know are there. And so the, the law of thermodynamics, which says that matter cannot be created or, or destroyed, science knows that that's exactly what happened. And in addition to that, when the Big Bang Theory happened and when the explosion, the great explosion took place, that was the beginning and the creation of the universe itself, they know that the four main laws of the forces that hold everything together. Those four main laws are gravitational force, laws concerning the electromagnetic force, strong nuclear force, and weak nuclear force. And all of, these, all of those things have to do with molecules and, and whether or not they join together or whether or not they separate or whether or not they join together in such a density that it, it, there's no uh, possibility to support life or, or so forth. They know that all these four forces, four main forces of the universe, they know that they occurred, that they began in one billionth of one second from the time of the Big Bang. When the explosion happened that started the universe, which science can now identify very easily, within one billionth of one second, the laws of nature and laws, the laws of physical nature were established. Now, some people still want to hold to the, to the theory that that was random. But I think anybody with any intelligence knows different. Now, of those four laws that govern the universe or the makeup of the universe... I hope you know what I mean when I say govern the universe, that are applicable to the universe that we live in. Of those four laws, if, any, if the ratio of one to another, and they all interact with each other, as you can well understand, if the ratio was changed by 0, 0.0 to 40 zeros point 0.1, or not point 0.1, but 1, 10 to the 40th power. If they were altered in any way just that much, we wouldn't have a livable place in the universe that existed. In fact, there are so many things. I mentioned that uh, in Sagan's theory, he took the two things that were considered necessary for human life well, by, 19, by 2000, year 2000, there were 150 requirements for life. And of those 150 requirements, the statistical probability of the things being the way that they are, are way less than zero. What I'm saying, what I want you to understand is science has identified that according to statistical probabilities, there's no way for Earth to have 
and be a habitable place for anybody. Human life is impossible, statistically. Now, I don't know how much that means to you. But it certainly does support the idea that there's a a force outside of the physical realm that's in charge of and taking care of things. There are countless numbers of things that we could talk about that science has discovered about the world that we live in and, and the universe itself. We could well understand that if the, the sun was one degree further, I'm sorry, one percent further away from the earth, the earth wouldn't be habitable, it'd be too cold to support life. If it was one percent closer, then earth would burn up. If the moon was just a fraction larger than it is, it would affect the tides on the earth to such a degree that we'd have no way for the seawater, the coastal, coastal shores, to be replenished with nutrients and to be cleansed or have the cleansing agent of itself. That's primarily what the tides do, as I understand. It takes care of the, the seawater itself. It cleans the seawater itself. If the moon was 1% closer then we'd have 100-foot waves as a regular course of operation. If the moon was any closer to where we are, to the earth and where it is now, there would be winds like exist on other planets. Some estimate in excess of 1,000 miles an hour. That makes it kind of hard to live through, too. But of all the things that we could say, and I don't claim to be a an expert on any of this stuff. But one of the things that, that really caught my attention is that they've identified, they meaning science has identified that molecules have weight. Things that we can't see have weight. And the ammonia and methane, which are both poisonous and would extinguish human life, they have a molecular weight of 16 and 17. I'm not sure which one is which. But one of them, methane and ammonia, one of them is 16 and the other has a molecular atomic weight of 17. Water vapor, which is necessary to sustain human life, we're comprised of 75% water. And so water vapor, which is huge and uh, critical, to sustain human life on the earth. Water vapor has a molecular weight of 18. So you got two poisonous gases, methane and ammonia at 16 and 17. You got water vapor at 18. If the gravitational force that's at work on our planet now, if it was just a fraction and by fraction, I mean one of those numbers that's got 40 or 50 zeros on it and a one. If it was just fractionally different, if the gravitational force was fractionally greater, then water vapor would not be held to the earth. Methane and ammonia would dominate. And so the interconnection of these things and the inner workings of these things is so precise and so minute that according to the scientists themselves they have been proofs that turn a lot of guys that started off to be atheists into believers in an intelligent being. It is said, and I don't know how you can verify this one way or the other, I haven't been able to, but it's said that hardly any scientist that works with these kinds of operations or the, these fields of study, it's almost impossible to find an atheist in that group anymore. When they used to be dominated, when those groups used to be dominated by atheists. And folks, 
it makes sense that science could only confirm what the Bible tells us if the Bible is truth. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. In other words, Paul is saying that one form of unrighteousness is knowing the truth, having the truth, holding the truth, but denying it to be true. Verse 20, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power in Godhead, so that they are without excuse. I want you to notice the first phrase of that verse. The invisible things of God are known by the creation of the world. The creation account, which science has had to agree that Moses provided for them 3,500 years before they ever discovered things that would confirm it. The creation of the world gives us an opportunity provides for us information where even the invisible things of God can be seen. Now we read in John chapter uh, 18 when Jesus was standing before Pilate. We read that Jesus said that he was sent into the world to bear witness of the truth. To bear witness of the truth. To bear witness of the truth. That's when Pilate said what's truth? And of course he's coming from the standpoint of the position You've got your truth, I've got my truth, what's truth? He's living and trying to operate and navigate in a political world to make everybody happy, which was the only reason that he finally acquiesced to Jesus being crucified. He examined him. And through his examination, he couldn't find anything wrong with Jesus. But he finally gave in to the people's require, uh, request and desire to have Jesus crucified. He did it for political purposes, obviously. He made a show of it of wiping his hands, washing his hands clean of the blood of Jesus, like that was supposed to help something. And so here Jesus is saying that he's sent to bear witness of the truth. Pilate's understanding of truth is whatever gets him by, whatever creates the least. Uh, hassle for him that's what he accepts to be true so he agrees to the crucifixion of Jesus knowing that Jesus didn't deserve it knowing that he's sacrificing a worthier uh, I'm sorry he's sacrificing an innocent man someone certainly not worthy of death but of course he didn't realize the role that Jesus is playing as the sacrifice for mankind You remember in John chapter 3 when Nicodemus came to Jesus? He came to him in the middle of the night because he was part of the, the Jewish religious leadership, part of the Pharisees. And he was trying to keep his visit hidden. But he said to Jesus, we know you're come from God for no man can do these miracles that you're doing except God be with him. And Jesus said, you must be born again. Now, Jesus doesn't change the subject, and he doesn't ignore his statement. He's telling him being born again, entering into the new creation, or becoming a new creation, entering into the family of God, is the key to the miraculous realm. You must be born again. Now, folks, there are a lot of people in the modern-day day and age that we live in, both Christians and non-Christians, who do not believe in miracles. Now, miracles, for our definition, 
could be defined as divine intervention into the ordinary course of nature. Let's modify that a little bit. Instead of divine intervention, let's say an external force. And instead of the ordinary course of nature, let's call this physical realm what it really is. It's a realm of time and space. So a more scientific term or definition of miracles would be an outside force interfering with space and time. And folks, that's exactly what God does. It's exactly what he does. He interjects, he interferes in this realm of time and space. And we call those miracles. Now, if you look up the word miracle in the New Testament, the Greek word that's translated miracle is used 69 times. In the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's always a negative term. For example, you remember perhaps that Jesus said on several occasions, uh, several occasions, an evil and a wicked generation seeks a sign. Well, that's the same as saying an evil and a wicked generation seeks a miracle. But beginning with the book of John, the gospel of John, from their own signs and, and miracles, this word that's translated miracles is always used in a positive manner. Paul said that Jesus was a man approved of God by signs and wonders and miracles and distributions of the Holy Ghost. Nicodemus certainly means it in a positive way. And the miracles that Jesus performed caused him to understand something or to believe something. Now I want you to turn with me to, Matthew, to um, Mark chapter 6. I want you to see something here. In the 6th chapter of Mark, If you look back up into the middle of the chapter, let's start in verse 34. I won't read through the whole thing, but I do want you to see the context in which these things are presented. It says, And Jesus, when he came out, saw much people and was moved with compassion toward them, because they were as sheep not having a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when the day was now far spent, the disciples came unto him and said, This is a desert place, and now the time is far past. Send them away, that they may go into the country round about and into villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. He answered and said unto them, Give you them to eat. And they said unto him, Shall we go and buy two hundred penny worth of bread and give them to eat? Now, folks, I want you to understand. Uh, Matthew's account, Matthew 14, I believe, when Jesus says to the disciples, give them something to eat, the disciples say, where can we buy enough bread for everything? But Jesus is trying to show them something. He's trying to reveal something about the Father God. And remember, that's what he always did. He said, I only do the works of him that sent me. I'm not doing these works of myself. They're works that the Father sent me to do. So he said, told his disciples, give them something to eat. And they said, shall we go and buy 200 penny worth of bread and give them to eat? They didn't say they didn't have enough money. They're saying, where are we going to get that kind of bulk food? Costco's not open today. <laughs> and Jesus said unto them, how many loaves do you have? And, they said, and he said, go and see. And they came back and said, we've got five, five loaves and two fishes. And he commanded them to make all sit down by companies on the green upon the green grass. And they sat down in ranks by hundreds and by fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fishes, he looked to heaven and blessed and break the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fishes divided he among them all. And they did all eat and were filled. And they took up twelve baskets full of the fragments and of the fishes. And they that did eat of the loaves were about five thousand men. Miracle, without question. To what end? Folks, God does everything with a purpose. And so every miracle that was performed, every miracle that Jesus worked, 
Every miracle that's ever taken place had a purpose. What's the purpose? You may remember that when Moses brought the children of Israel out from the land of Egypt, out of the bondage of Egypt. You remember the ten plagues that took place that caused Pharaoh to finally say, let them go. But then he relented, came out after them, and they wound up being destroyed in the parting of the Red Sea, or literally when the Red Sea came back together. Miracles. Every one of these things were miracles. What did they mean? See, the word miracle in the Greek literally means sign. That tells us that every miracle has a purpose. Every miracle was designed to point to something else. And it's always intended to point toward God, but not always in the same manner. You may also remember that in Numbers chapter 13, when these people of Israel who have been delivered miraculously from the bondage of Egypt, when they get to the promised land, the ten spies come back and give an evil report, saying the people that live in the land are stronger than we are and we can't take the land. One of the things that God said about that when talking to Moses He said, these people saw the miracles I did in Egypt. He said, they saw the miracle of the parting of the Red Sea. They've seen several miracles since then too. And so apparently they missed the the meaning of the miracles that God performed. It didn't make them people of faith. It didn't bring them to the place where they had confidence that God would see them through. Now, some of them did. Caleb and Joshua, that was their position. But they seemed to be in a great minority. So the children of Israel weren't affected by the miracles of the signs like they were supposed to be, like God intended for them to be. A lot of people say, I'd believe if I just saw a miracle. And folks, the reality that the Bible teaches us and reveals to us is that if you wouldn't believe without a miracle, you won't believe if you see one. Which means belief is a choice. Faith is always a choice. And remember, Jesus came to bear witness of the truth. So this faith, which we can't please God without, Hebrews eleven six, without faith it's impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. This faith that pleases God, that's the only thing that the Bible says pleases God. This faith has to be in the truth that Jesus bore witness of. But remember also in Hebrews 11.1, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Faith requires of us that we see the unseen. Now, when we talk about Jesus bearing witness to the truth, Jesus bore witness of something that was more than the earth that we live in and can see. That's why miracles were so important in Jesus' ministry. Nicodemus, as we've already mentioned in John chapter 3, verse 1, Nicodemus says, we know you've got to be from God For nobody can do the miracles that you do except God be with him. So Nicodemus recognized, he understood that the miracles pointed to God's presence upon this man, Jesus. He understood that. He didn't seem to understand much more than that. But at least he understood that. So Jesus feeds the 5,000 to reveal something. Jesus said himself, he that's seen me has seen the Father. So everything that Jesus did must have been in, with the purpose of showing us who God is. Every time the power of God interfered with this realm of time and space, every time, it was designed to point toward God. Now, folks, I want you to realize something else. Science considers this world system, this physical realm, physical universe, 
to be a closed system. Now, what that means is they don't expect any external force to be able to enter into this closed system. But that's exactly what the virgin birth was. It was God interjecting a sperm cell into this realm of time and space. Now, what I want you to realize along with this, folks, is that this closed system, this realm of time and space that was created by God was created in such a manner so that when God did interject external force or external power, miracle working power, nature is ready to receive it. Mary's pregnancy wasn't any different than anybody else's other than the origin of how she got pregnant. And because this system, this realm of time and space was created by God, any time and every time he's interfered with his power, that external force or external power that science refers to, this realm of time and space is always ready and willing to accept it and receive it. So Jesus feeds 5,000. He starts with two loaves and uh, five loaves and two fishes. And he winds up with 12 baskets full of leftovers. What is it supposed to teach us? Let's keep reading. Verse 45. And straightway he constrained his disciples to get into the ship and go to the other side before into Bethsaida. The other side means the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And he sent away the people. And when they had sent them away, he departed into a mountain to pray. And when evening was come, the ship was in the midst of the sea, and he alone on the land. And he saw them toiling and rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came unto them, walking upon the sea, and would have passed them by. That's an astonishing statement to me. And would have passed them by. But when they saw him walking upon the sea, they supposed it had been a spirit and cried out. For they all saw him and were troubled, and immediately he talked with them. And said, be of good cheer, it's I, be not afraid. I wonder how many people, other people that God would be willing to walk by. Except and unless they cry out for him to stop. The Bible tells us about two blind men. Jesus was walking down the road. These two blind men hear the commotion. The crowd of people that are coming. And so they ask somebody what's going on and somebody tells them it's Jesus and so they start screaming. They start crying out for Jesus to have mercy on them. And Jesus walks right by. Doesn't stop. He keeps going. And when he gets to where he's going these two blind men have now followed the crowd. They didn't take the attitude that well he passed by. That must mean it's God's will for us to stay blind. They didn't try to find out or figure out or understand the great significance of Jesus passing them by. They had heard of this guy. And so they followed the crowd. And so when Jesus got to the place that he was going, the house that he was going to, he stopped. And the two blind men finally catch up. And they come to where Jesus is. And they said, Lord, have mercy on us. Son of David, have mercy on us. Messianic term. They're indicating by their words that they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ. The word Christ means anointed one. Well, they've certainly heard of his healing anointing because that's what they came to receive themselves. So Jesus asked him, he said, what do you want me to do? Now, is Jesus any different now when he's sitting in the house? In front of these two guys as he was when he passed by them? Are the two guys any different than they were sitting on the side of the road? There's only one thing that's changed and that is they have shown their determination not to let Jesus go by them. It would have been more convenient for them if Jesus had just stopped, healed them and then went his way. But if it didn't work like that, then they would do whatever was necessary to get to where Jesus is going. 
So Jesus asked him a question. He said, do you believe I'm able to do this? And they said, yes, Lord. And Jesus healed their eyes. What was it that brought healing into their bodies? It was some power from outside the realm of time and space. Well, if God created this realm of time and space, if he's the one that established or created this realm of time and space and created the physical laws that govern this realm of time and space, then why shouldn't he be able to interject into it? Why shouldn't he be able to inject his power to bring about his will, in this case, their will too. So Jesus sends these guys away, walks to them on the water, convinces them that it's him. In verse 51, after saying, Be of good cheer, it's I, be not afraid. And he went up, into, up unto them into the ship, and the wind ceased, and they were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure and wondered. Notice verse 52. For they considered not the miracle of the loaves, for their heart was hardened. Now, folks, these are the guys that are watching the fish and the, and the loaves multiply. Jesus is sitting in one place. The people all get sat down in groups of 50. Jesus starts breaking the loaves and the fishes after praying over them, blessing them. They're the ones that go out with a, a little bit of food in some container, some basket, or whatever. They're the ones that see it multiply. Now, did it multiply out of Jesus' hands, or did it multiply out of their baskets? I don't know. But either way, they saw it. They may have been the only ones that did see it. Now, I have no doubt whatsoever that because it became such uh, common knowledge and was spread abroad so widely, I have no doubt whatsoever that the disciples, even if it's multiplying coming out of their baskets, that the disciples are telling people what's going on. I can't imagine this was some quiet, sanitized operation where the disciples are whispering to each other but not causing any commotion. What happened? At the very least, the disciples are telling people, we started with two, lo uh, two fish and five loaves. And that in, in, in and of itself would have been enough for everybody that's a part of that, everybody that's present, to say, you've got to be kidding me. This started off with five loaves and two fishes. Folks, as the Bible tells us, they took 12 baskets full of leftovers after it was done. But they missed the point of the loaves. They missed the point of the miracles. Now, as I said before, every miracle is intended to identify or to communicate something. It's certainly intended to communicate the presence and the power of God. But what did they miss out on? Again, the same story, the same context is in Matthew chapter 14. It tells us about the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes, the feeding of the 5,000. Then it tells us about Jesus walking on the water. Matthew 14 tells us about Peter walking on the water to come to him as well. And you remember how that worked, where Jesus had to help him. And then he questioned him. He said, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? Here it says in Mark 6.52, it says the disciples' heart was hardened. They've just seen the miracle. They've just witnessed Peter, uh, Jesus walking on the water. And Peter walked on the water for a ways too. They've seen back-to-back -back miracles. But their heart was hardened. What did they not believe that they should have believed? Well, certainly that God is able to multiply food. 
But I think it was intended to be deeper than that. I think that it was intended to be something more. But then what would it be? That the physical laws of nature will bend to the will, the plan, and the purpose of God. Folks, we've got example after example after example of the miracle working power of God where the laws of nature, the laws of physics that govern this world, and it always works except when they're superseded by the creator of the system itself. You remember in the Old Testament, the Bible tells us about a time when the kingdom of Israel was divided and the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom come together to go to war against the Edomites. Now they get themselves in a fix because of poor military planning and they get themselves in a place, in a desert place, three days away, three days march away from any source of water. Well, that means they're dead. You go for a while without food, but you can't go for more than three days without water. And so their army is about to be wiped out, not by an enemy army, but by thirst. And so they go to the prophet. And the prophet says, if it wasn't for the king of the southern kingdom, the king of, of Judah... God wouldn't get involved in this at all. But here's what he said. He said, tomorrow you'll be visited with water. Not rain, but water. He told them to dig trenches in the valley where they were. Now, folks, in a land without water, in a desert land, digging's not too easy to do. It's especially not too easy to do when you haven't had water in a while. But they go to the time and the trouble and the inconvenience everything that's necessary to dig these ditches. And the Bible says in the morning, water came from the east. Now, there's no bodies of water for hundreds of miles in the direction that it said that it came. Now, there's closer water in other directions, but none from the east. And so the water came from the east, it didn't rain. It's hard to have a tidal wave when you don't have a sea. How did this happen? Nobody ever gives any explanation whatsoever. It says water came to them. The original language says it, it came as a wall from the east. From the direction where there is no source of water whatsoever. And it not only refreshed them, but it says when their enemies were come out against them, they saw the sun reflecting off the water and thought it was blood. And so they said, our enemies have killed themselves. And so they walked right into the camp of Israel, and Israel defeated them. Because they didn't come thinking they'd have to fight. They thought the fight was already done. What about the water coming from the rock that Moses struck? It had to be enough water to provide for millions of people. The estimates of the, the size of the crowd that came out of Egypt under Moses is estimated between 2 and 7 million. And it wasn't just a stopping and watering place. They were there for some period of time. So the water that came forth out of the rock had to be something that created a lake or a lake-like condition. Not shallow water, but deep water to provide for the children of Israel and their animals and everything else they needed the water for. What'd that miracle mean? We've got miracles in the Old Testament where the, it tells us that the molecular structure of an axe iron head had to change to float to the top. Now, how did Jesus walk on the water? Did he supersede gravity or did gra was gravity just, um, suspended 
for the time that he was setting foot on the water? The Bible doesn't tell us. But we've got example after example. When children of Israel went to war against one of their enemies, as long as Moses held up his hands, the battle was won. And so they created a way for him to keep his hands raised. Somebody got under each one of his hands. Now, folks, raising your hands in and of itself doesn't create victory, does it? What about when Joshua was the leader of the children of Israel and he was running out of daylight to defeat his enemies? He told the sun and the moon to stand still. Now, folks, there are so many things that had to change for life to be suspended for the time that the sun and the moon stayed still. Did the earth stop rotating? Did the sun and the moon rotate with the earth? I don't have any answers on this kind of stuff, folks. My job is to bring you questions. <laughs> but there are so many things that had to be suspended. It's not like when Joshua told the sun and the moon to stand still. If you remember the account, God didn't tell him to do it. Joshua just did it. What did that guy know to have the courage to tell the moon and the sun to stand still? He must have understood the miracle of the loaves and the fishes even though he was way younger than that or way before that. He must have understood that this system, this closed system of time and space was created to serve man not to rule him. And when, Mo, and when Joshua told the sun and the moon to stand still, God didn't respond by saying, now wait a minute. Do you know what that will entail? He didn't tell him all the things that would have to stop or be suspended at the same time. Because as hard as the miracles seem to us to have occurred, is anything too hard for the Lord? Folks, God's a big God. He's way bigger than whatever's going on in your life. He's way bigger, much more able to do what we need him to do than most of us think that he is. The Bible says that in the times of the tribulation, at the end of the tribulation, God will peel the sky back like he pulls a curtain away. So that every person on the earth at that time can look up into the heaven and see him coming. I wonder how many laws of nature that will mess up. We serve a big God. And the God that did all these things and the God that's able to do much more has sworn that he will not alter the covenant or the promises that he's made unto us. He'll never break his covenant. He'll never break what belongs to you and me because we're in Christ. We're children of Abraham through faith and heirs according to the promise. And God has given us his word to tell us what those promises are. If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples? And you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. God's a big God. That's the God that he wants the world to know. Not the God that the modern-day church portrays. Well, he said he'd answer prayer, but you know he doesn't always. He said whatever we call for or required in the name of Jesus would be done. 
But you can't expect that. You can't take that literally. That's not the God that he wants portrayed. That's not the character and the nature, his character and nature that he wants the world to know. He wants the world to know who he is, what he's willing to do and what he has done for us. And when people see that God, when people see that that's how God is, you can't keep them from running to to him. When the Bible talks about the glory of the Lord being greater in the last days of the church than they were than it was in the early days of the church, that has to mean signs and wonders. Has to mean miracles. You can't have greater glory and be lesser in miracles that the book of Acts tells us about. We see what God considers the glory of the Lord to be because of what he did in the early days of the church as recorded in the book of Acts. Well, God hadn't changed his definition. He hadn't changed his ideas. So if that's what constituted the glory of the Lord in the early days of the church, it has to be what constitutes the glory of the Lord in the latter days of the church. God said it himself. I'm God. I do not change. I think we need to start thinking bigger. I think we need to expect bigger. Now let me wrap this up. What does that mean? Well, if we can only please God by faith, and faith is the evidence of things not seen, that means the only way that we can be pleasing to God is to believe in something other than what we see in this life. That means if you're, going to, if you're going to please him concerning healing, the healing power of God, that means we're going to have to believe in what the Bible says about healing no matter of the sickness or the circumstances in our body. If we're going to please God in the area of finances, we're going to have to believe him, believe the word that says he was made poor for our sakes so that we through his poverty might be made rich. Even when our bank book doesn't look like we're rich. It means we're going to have to take the word of God in each and every area of our lives. And believe what his word says instead of what it appears to be. It's the only way we can please God folks. See when our circumstances don't contradict what the word says is ours. There's no way to exercise faith. But in every area where our circumstances deny the truth of the word, we can be pleasing to him only by believing what his word says. And believing what his word says is defined by Jesus as believing in the heart and saying with the mouth. And that's the only way we can be pleasing to him. God's a big God. And he wants to do big things. I've never been more convinced of it than I am now. The things that are ahead are greater than we can imagine them, imagine them to be. Because God's a big God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that's revealed to us. Help us, Holy Spirit, to continue in that word by your direction, not just by our own will. We thank you for leading us into the truth that you have for us to believe, to take hold of, and to confess. We rely on you, Holy Spirit. You are given to guide us into all reality. Guide us into all truth. So we thank you for leading us into the reality of victory in every area of our lives. Not just in some areas, but in every area. 
We love you, Father. We thank you for being so good to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's all stand. Before we go, let's just lift our hands and thank the Lord. He has been so good to us, individually and as a church family. We love you, Father. We thank you for all of your goodness and your mercy. Lord, we come to you not because we want something from you, but because we want to show you our love. But we know that because we've set our love upon you, you deliver us. Because we've known your name, you set us on high. When we call upon you, you answer us. You're with us in trouble. You deliver us and you honor us. And with long life, you show us your salvation. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Use us, Lord, according to your will, not to make a name for ourselves, but to exalt the precious name of Jesus. For it's in his name we ask these things, believing. Amen. Amen. Well, come back and be with us tonight for Healing School if you can. Have a wonderful day. You're dismissed.